0: We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to John chapter 4 this morning, and I want to return to the story of the woman at the well that we studied last week, and I want to take a closer look at what Jesus said to her in response to her question about the proper place to worship. We have here in John chapter 4... What one of my seminary professors called a jugular text, a critical text, a vital text, Um, sort of like John 3:16, when we went through the big picture of Nicodemus and that midnight talk with Jesus about being born again, and we just kind of breezed over John 3:16 to get the big flow of the big picture of the text of the story. We did that last week with the story of the woman at the well, but we would be remiss if we didn't go back and look a little more closely at what Jesus had to say about worship in this text. You remember from last week, after this complete stranger, Jesus, exposed the Samaritan woman's sinful lifestyle, she knew that he must be some sort of a prophet. And so she decided to get his perspective on the age-old debate between the Samaritans and the Jews regarding where God was to be worshipped. Verse 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Based on what God had told David and his son Solomon about the building of the temple in Jerusalem, the Jews believed that the temple in Jerusalem was the only God-ordained place of worship. The Samaritans, on the other hand, only recognized the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible, and they noted that the first place that Abraham built an altar to God was at Shechem, which was in the land of Samaria and was in the shadow of Mount Gerizim where this conversation took place. And they, it was there that they built their own temple to worship God since the Jews denied them access to the temple in Jerusalem because they were half-breeds. They had intermarried with, uh, with non-Jews, and so they didn't want anything to do with these Samaritans. And so Jesus responded in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus essentially told this woman that it was a pointless debate anyway, because both locations would soon be obsolete, and neither temple would be necessary for those who wanted to truly worship God, And then he pointed out, as a Samaritan, that she was basically clueless. <laughs> she didn't know what she was even worshiping. You worship what you do not know. She didn't have the full revelation of God, because, again, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, and as a result, she was worshiping God in ignorance, she didn't realize that what matters most to God when it comes to those who worship him is not where they worship but how they worship. And I think this woman was a lot like people today who are confused about what it really means to worship God. And James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on the Gospel of John makes this comment at this point he said quote in spite of the obvious truth that the worship of God is an important and even urgent imperative for Christians, it is a sad fact that in our day, much that passes for worship is not worship at all. And many who sincerely desire to worship do not always know how to go about it or where to begin. And I would think that while this woman may have been ignorant, I do get the sense that she was sincere, that that she truly desired to worship God, but she didn't know how to go about it or where to begin. And that's why what Jesus said to this woman in in the next two verses, verses 23 and 24, is so critical, not just for her, but for us, to understand and apply to our lives when it comes to worshiping God. And here is our text for this morning, verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, you need to understand that this is the definitive text in the New Testament on how and why we must worship. No other passage more clearly, more concisely addresses the nature and necessity of true worship than this passage. In fact, the word worship or Worshipper is used 10 times in, in these two verses and its surrounding verses, and uh, John only used the word worshipper, worshipper, 13 times total in the entire Gospel of John, and so uh, all of the worship focus is right here. It's, 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 this, is, this is the concentrated section about true worship. As I begin this morning, I want to recommend a book, which I often do. But this is a book that I would encourage every one of you to get and read as soon as possible. Uh, This is a reprint of a book, uh, really John MacArthur's most, uh, longest uh, book in printing uh, is this book right here. It's called Worship, The Ultimate Priority. And uh, it was a really foundational book that I read years ago and uh, really set my vision for not just my own personal life, but uh, for the life of the church, and the kind of church that I wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be part of leading and, and, and ministering to and with. And so um, I'm gonna quote several times from this book, but again, it's a very, very helpful resource. In fact, I asked Vi to get some of these so that we would have them available for you. Um, but again, Worship the Ultimate Priority by John MacArthur. On the back cover of this book, this is what it says. Nothing is more important than worship. It is a theme of scripture it is a theme of eternity, and it is a theme of redemptive history. Your ultimate priority must always be to worship the true and living God. And so I think the, where all this discussion on worship needs to begin is understanding that there is a God who deserves to be worshiped and who desires to be worshiped. That is the most foundational, fundamental truth of the universe. There is a God who deserves to be worshipped and desires to be worshipped. God wants glory. He wants praise. He wants honor. He wants to be adored by those that he's created. He wants all of us to fall on our faces before him and to lift our voices to him and express to him how wonderful he is, how amazing he is, how marvelous he is. He wants us to sing his praises. For all that he is, all that he does, he wants us to tell him how awesome he is. Now, to our human ears, something sounds wrong with that. It sounds arrogant. It sounds self-serving. But we need to keep in mind that we're talking about God here. And God is not anything like us. It's sinful for us to want to be worshipped to be praised for people to sing our praises for people to adore us for people to tell us how awesome we are. Oh please no, please no. Tell me some more, right? This it's sinful. It's prideful. But guess what? God cannot sin. And this is just one more reason why he is so worthy to be worshipped because he's the one and only person in the universe who is truly worthy to be praised and glorified and has the right to desire and even demand worship from us. And we know that throughout his word, God calls us to worship him. In fact, worship is the pervasive theme of the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between. The first time that the word worship is mentioned in, in the page of the scripture is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8. You'll remember when Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac, and as they were heading up to the mountain where this sacrifice was to take place, Genesis 22:8 says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. The last time worship is mentioned in the Bible is the last chapter of the book of Revelation, John recorded this. He said, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. The one who revealed the book of Revelation to him, he bowed down and he wanted to to, to worship, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And so that angel picked him off his feet and said, don't worship me. I'm, I'm like you, worship God. We know that the, 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 the portion or section of Scripture where the doctrine of worship is, is most obvious is the book of Psalms. And uh, it really was Israel's hymn book is, is what the book of Psalms is, and that's why we so often uh, turn to it when, uh, you know, for our worship service time, our, our, our scripture reading and prayer time, because really they're, they're just songs of praise and they fit right into a worship service. Psalm 95, verse six, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 27, Psalm 27, a psalm of David Verse 4, listen to what it says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. And so here is an an expression of a true worshiper, someone who's longing to, to, to dwell in the presence of the Lord, to behold His beauty, to meditate in His temple. David goes on in that same psalm, Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. And so David was saying that he understood God told him, commanded him to seek his face and worship. And, And David's heart responded and said, yes, Lord, your face I will seek. And I don't think that David is the only one that God called to seek his face. He's called all of us to seek his face, to worship him. But we also need to realize that while he calls us to seek him, the whole time he is seeking us. John 4, 23, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so there's a certain kind of worshiper that God is seeking. He's specifically looking for those who worship Him the way that pleases Him. And God clearly revealed to us in His Word the kind of worship that pleases Him and the kind of worship that displeases Him. In other words, there's a right way to worship and a wrong way to worship God. And here in John chapter 4, the Samaritans and the Jews are two examples of the wrong way to worship God. We mentioned this last week, that the Jews had reduced worship to an elaborate system of outward rituals and ceremonies and traditions. And what was happening at Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem, was lifeless orthodoxy. It was was light without heat, truth with no spirit. On the other hand, the Samaritans had developed their own religion with no biblical authority. And what was happening at the temple in Mount Gerizim was zealous heresy. It was heat without light. It was spirit with no truth. And so Jesus was rebuking the worship practices of both the Jews and the Samaritans. The former was worshiping God without any real passion or emotion, while the latter was worshiping God with passion and emotion, but without any basis in the Bible. And according to Jesus, both were false forms of worship that were unacceptable to God. Because the Jews and the Samaritans were bringing something to God that he did not desire. He didn't want. And so as a corrective to these two false forms of worship, that that of the Jews and that of the Samaritans, in these two verses, in verses 23 and 24, we learn the two ways that God wants to be worshiped. The two ways that God wants to be worshipped. There are two things that God is looking for from you, two things he's looking for from me when we worship him. There's two things that we must do in order for our worship to be pleasing and acceptable to God. You say, what are they? Number one, we, need to, we must worship God from our heart. We must worship God from our heart. We must worship him in spirit. Secondly, we must worship God with our head. We must worship God with our head. We should worship Him in truth. And so we're going to look at these two ways that God desires to be worshiped. But before we do that, I want to just talk with you a little bit about worship, just kind of in a general overview uh, sense before we look at these, these, these two phrases in spirit and in truth. The English word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship, worth-ship. So worship is assigning to God his true worth. It's giving God the glory that is due him. It's expressing to him how worthy he is by adoring him, by praising him, by honoring him, by magnifying him, by exalting his name. That's what we mean by worship, is worship? Someone has defined worship as all that we are responding to all that God is. All that we are, responding to all that God is. John MacArthur defines worship very simply in this book. He says, True worship is a response of adoration and praise prompted by truth that God has revealed. True worship is, respo- is a response of adoration and praise prompted by truth that God has revealed. In other words, our response of adoration and praise to what we know about God based on what we see around us in his creation, based on what we see in his word, his revelation, we can express that in a number of ways. We can sing, we can pray, we can serve and minister, we can give financially, um, but most importantly, we can live lives to the glory of God. And I think that is the most important aspect of worship um, that we need to make sure we don't miss. We need to get past that false impression that worship is something we do for an hour on Sunday morning during what we call the worship service. Yeah, I went to worship today. Well, worship is not a a a once-a-week event. It's a way of life. It's why we exist. God created us to worship Him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Worship is, is, is a way of life. And what we do when we come here to the worship service is simply come together with other true worshipers who have been worshiping privately and, and individually all week. And, and this is just the cherry on top of the Sunday. We get to come together as, as like-minded believers and we do this corporately. And there's some special blessings that come along with with corporate worship. But but you can't worship corporately if if you don't worship individually. And so really, this is just maybe a highlight of the week, but we should leave here, right, continuing to worship out there. This is not the only place you can worship God. It's how you live your life. And having said that, there are... There are some misnomers and some misconceptions when it comes to worshiping at church that I think it's important just to talk about briefly. Um, oftentimes you'll meet the, the the guy in charge of the music ministry in a church, and he's called the worship pastor. And sometimes, uh, while that's not a bad name, um, it, it equates the fact that, that, um, that, that the only time we worship is when we sing, right? whenever there's anything related to music that's worship anything that doesn't have devolve, doesn't involve music is not worship uh, that's why i would prefer just to call him a music pastor or the music minister or the music of whatever music or a uh, minister of music why because it, it's just like you could be playing a bunch of songs up here and and it doesn't necessarily mean that worship is happening right the other thing is i think we talk about how you know, we, we sing, we have a time of worship in our, in our church, in our church service, and then we have a time in the Word. So somehow we, get, we divide the time of singing and praying, and we somehow separate it from the time of preaching and teaching. Whereas, guess what? We're still worshiping right now. We're worshiping God, maybe in, a, in, in His highest form, through the Scriptures, as we listen to Him speak to us through the Word of God that this is a form of worship, preaching and listening. And so just when the band plays its last notes and, and we close in prayer before the preacher gets up, the worship didn't stop. It's, it's just getting going. That was just setting the table, right, for the really the centerpiece of worship, which is the preaching of God's Word. We'll talk about that a little later. I think another misconception, and, and this is just inherent in our society and our culture, is that um, it's easy to forget that since you guys are all seated in the audience section, and, uh, and I and the music team, we're standing up on the stage where people perform, right? It's easy to, to think that you're the audience, right? And we're performing for you. That's why it's common for those who attend church... To critique the Sunday morning worship service at lunch, they have roast preacher, or in Texas, fried preacher, right? It reminds me of the dad who was talking about how boring the sermon was and how bad the special music was at lunch on Sunday when his little son, who'd happened to see what his dad had put in the offering plate that morning, said, Dad, well, what do you expect for five bucks? <laughs> We need to remember that God is the audience. God is the audience. We're the ones on the stage performing, all of us. Not just me, you you are. We're all on the stage. And we're here for the pleasure of the king who is seated on his throne in heaven and he's watching us and he's listening to us and most important, he is looking into our hearts. He's looking past all the Everything we're doing, he's looking past all that stuff, because anybody can do that. And he's looking at what's going on in our hearts. We also need to remember that true worship has nothing to do with a hundred-voice choir, a full orchestra, or even a a Nashville-type praise band, right? A state-of-the-art sound system, wonderful acoustics, perfectly played music, an extremely talented music leader, outstanding vocalists. None of those things have much to do with worship. While they may enhance the atmosphere and eliminate some of the distractions and the hindrances, they're not what make for a truly great worship experience. The the, the, the key to a great worship service is great worshipers. People who love God and have a passion to worship Him with all their heart. Listen, the best worship services I've ever been to have not been here in America. They've not been in this church. Don't take offense to that, right? They've been somewhere in Africa or India where these people have nothing, literally, and they don't even have instruments to play. And they don't have a worship pastor, right? They just have somebody up there With maybe some scraps of paper, and they're they're going along. They don't have an overhead. They don't have a PowerPoint. They don't have a a video projector. They don't have they have they don't have a grand piano, right? But I tell you what, those people worship better than anybody I've ever met in in the United States. And I'm I'm convicted. I'm humbled. When I watch their joy and their passion and their zeal and, 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 and you know, they're, they're jumping up and down and, and it's not some silly charismatic type jumping up and down. I mean, these people are full body worship and it's genuine, it's sincere, it's passionate and you can tell they just, these people are going hard after God. And I think that's the key. That's the key to being a great worshiper is that that you go hard after God all week. And when you come together at church, you do the same thing. And when people just come in and kind of like, la-da-da-da-da, you know, go through the motions, you know what that tells us? You know what that should say to us? It tells us about ourselves? We've not been going hard after God all week. You You can't expect to show up on Sunday morning and go hard after God. If you're not doing it the rest of the week. This this, this is just an overflow of what has, has been happening in our hearts during the week. And so, regardless of whether we're singing a hymn or we're singing a praise chorus or whether we're accompanied by an organ or a banjo, it shouldn't matter. And I say that because so many of the issues and concerns about worship in the church today are all about form, they're all about style. Not content. None none of the issues have to do with anything about content. Like, what are we singing? Not how it sounds, but what are we saying? What are we singing about? What are the words? And you've heard all the stories about the worship wars in the church, and they're talking about, you know, should we sing hymns or or praise songs? Should we raise our hands or not raise our hands? It's all this, again, it's all external stuff. And uh, they're all matters of personal taste and preference. And at the end of the day, they really don't matter. And you know this to be true. You may have never experienced this yourself, but you've driven by enough churches, I'm sure, and seen on a sign where they advertise two services, the traditional service and the contemporary service. Why are they doing that? Well, they're trying to accommodate people's preferences and tastes. And I think every church, God's given every church the the freedom to pursue people and to, 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 to reach them with the gospel and to help grow people up in Christ in, in any way they deem best, as long as it lines up with Scripture. I don't think this is like a, you know, thou shalt not have two services, you know, issue. But I just think it's interesting to see how, how so many churches today seem to be really exalting a preference issue to a higher level than it should ever be given within a church, And those who have a traditional service that typically caters to who? The seniors, right? The senior saints and the contemporary service, which typically is geared more for the younger crowd, they're unwittingly splitting their their church. Even though everybody's still coming. They're splitting their church. That would be almost like, okay, I know that some of you like green-color carpet, some of you like blue-color carpet, so what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of... uh, You know, carpet, the church, kind of half green, half blue. Those of you that prefer blue can sit on this side. Those of you who like green can sit on this side. I mean, that's silly. We laugh at that, right? But again, it's a preference issue. It's a taste issue. And I think they're missing an opportunity to train people to think biblically about the nature of worship. It's not about form. It's not about style. It's not about how it sounds. It's about what it says. It's the lyrics. Are they biblical? And it's about the lifestyle of the people that are leading That's what matters. And this is a golden opportunity, I think, for every church to to teach their people to not merely look out for their own own interests, but to look out for the interests of others, right? Not not just to, to, to be all about what you want, your tastes, your preferences, right? But to consider other people's tastes and preferences. Well, that was all for free. That was just me getting some stuff off my chest, right? Some things that we see in the church today, that um, oftentimes they're just um, just totally missing the point, right? But let's just look now for the time we have remaining at these two ways that God wants to be worshipped. That if we want our worship to be pleasing to the Lord, then we must do it in two ways. Number one, we must worship God from our heart. From our heart. And this is really a, a, a trying to principalize the expression in spirit. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. Now let me begin by saying this, that the, the word spirit here doesn't refer to the Holy Spirit. I don't think Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit here. Now granted, true worship must be generated, must be motivated, must be empowered, must be sustained by the Holy Spirit. We know that. But here, Jesus was simply referring to the human spirit, our inner person, our heart, our soul. And so to worship God in spirit, or to worship God from our heart, means that we need to worship God in two ways. We need to worship inwardly, and we need to worship intensely. We need to worship inwardly, and we need to worship intensely. What do I mean by worshiping inwardly? Well, we need to worship God from the very core of our being, not just not just outwardly performing a bunch of rituals and traditions. You remember the classic call of God through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter six to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter six verse four: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what heart, and with all your what soul, and with all your." Might. And of course, we know that's what Jesus quoted was that passage when he was asked, What is the greatest commandment? And he said, You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Talking about from, from your inside, inwardly. Again, David in Psalm 51, his great prayer of confession after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. His sin was exposed by the prophet Nathan, and he came clean. And this is what he said in Psalm 51, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. So he's talking about worship here, worshiping God. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. He says, listen, I know you don't want me to go offer a bunch of sacrifices to make this right. To somehow get back right with you. That's not what you're wanting. That's not what you're desiring. The sacrifices of God are a broken what? Spirit, a broken and contrite what? Heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David knew that it wasn't about jumping through a bunch of hoops, running around, burning a bunch of stuff, and somehow that was going to make him right with God. He said, I know what you're looking for, God. You're looking for a broken and contrite heart. You're, you're looking what, for what's going on in the inside. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my what, soul. soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is outside of me. No, all that is what? Within me, bless his holy name. So true worship originates from and flows out of our heart, our soul, our inner man, our inner person. Again, John MacArthur states this. He says, worship is to flow from the inside out. It is not a matter of the right words, the right demeanor, the right clothes, the right formalities, the right music, and the right mood. Worship is not an external activity. It takes place on the inside in the spirit. You say, why? Why? Well, what do we know about God here in this text, verse 24? God is what? Spirit. And so our spirit, our soul, the invisible immortal part of us connects with God on his level if you will. Who God is immortal, God is invisible. And so if we want to relate to God, if we want to worship God, if we want to connect with God, we have to do it on His level. And God is spirit, and so we must connect with Him in our spirit, in our soul. And what's exciting about that is that can happen anywhere at any time. It's not about being in the right place at the right time, doing the right things, right? You don't have to come to church to do that. You don't have to sing a song to do that. You don't have to light a candle to do that. You don't have to kneel down in prayer. You don't have to cross yourself to do that, right? You could do all those things and never truly worship the Lord because you're simply worshiping in body. Some of you may be here this morning and you're, you're not worshiping in spirit. You're worshiping in body. Pretty much all that is here is your carcass, right? Your body, you're just sitting there, but your heart's, man, your heart's a million miles away. Your heart's not here. Your heart's not in it. You're not worshiping the Lord. You may have sang all the songs, prayed all the prayers. You might even be listening to this sermon in and out, but your heart's not in it. And so, first of all, we need to, in order for our worship to be pleased in the Lord, it needs to come from the inside. It needs to be, we need to worship inwardly. Secondly, I think this idea of in spirit means that we need to worship intensely. We need to worship intensely. In other words, it's coming from the heart, and so it must be heartfelt. So it's not enough that it's just coming from the heart, right? It needs to be heartfelt. It needs to be passionate. It needs to be zealous. And again, looking back at the true worshipers of the Psalms, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you. For God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Psalmist is saying, when can I come? I, I gotta come, I need to come, I desire to come, I'm panting for you, God. David says something similar to that in Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you apathetically. What does he say? I will seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. To see your power and your glory because of your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so the psalmist was passionate, was zealous, His worship, their worship was intense. There was emotion. There was feeling. There was passion. There maybe even were tears of joy, tears of sorrow. There was probably exhilarations of joy as they worshiped. And so that's precious. We've all experienced that, I hope, right? Where you're maybe singing a song or you're listening to a song and before you know it, you're, you're crying, right? Because the truth of that song is ministering to your heart and it's, it's touching your heart. It's putting its finger on an issue in your life, and your soul, and, and, and there's even times when you might be, be, be singing a song and all of a sudden you get these goosebumps, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Jesus bumps or something, right? You just, you just, wow, that was really cool. Having said that, I think we have to be very careful, though, that we don't confuse worship with feelings or emotions, with mere feelings and emotions. Just because you got the warm fuzzies, just because you got the goosebumps, just because you cried, doesn't necessarily mean that you truly worship the Lord. I've done all that. I've experienced all that in a movie. And you have too, right? When the soundtrack, it's climactic point in the movie, and they score the winning goal, I cry at sports movies. I, I don't know. I just when they when they win this goal and it's the music and they're all coming out of the ice, and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm like, whoa! I'm getting all goosebumpy and stuff. And I'm like, whoa! That is awesome. I'm not worshiping. I'm, I'm having an emotional experience, right? Based on external stimulus. And so we have to be careful, Don't just because you're feeling stuff doesn't necessarily mean you're worshiping, although at times that is the fruit of true worship, and it's sweet and it's precious, and we thank the Lord for giving us those times. I think some people feel guilty, and I guess I say this because some people feel guilty that, you know, they're singing and... And, and you know, they're just kind of standing there and they're singing the words and, and they might be standing there like one of the frozen chosen, you know, and they're just kind of like just like this and they're singing and the person next to him just doing this, you know, and they're looking over there going, well, that person, you know, people would look at those two people and say, well, that person's that's true worship. I'm not sure what this other guy's doing. Well, listen, guess what? There could be just as much passion and emotion with somebody just standing there still and mouthing the words, I mean, from his heart, right, than somebody who's jumping up and down, right, and waving their arms. So don't, don't just go off of what's going on on the outside, right? Because ultimately, what matters is going on, on the inside. And so we need to worship God from our heart in spirit. Secondly, we need to worship God with our head. We need to worship God with our head And again, in John chapter 4, Jesus says that that there there will come a day when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and, and truth, spirit and truth. God is spirit, verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not enough just to have that inward, intense worship. There needs to be, that needs to be combined with, coupled with, balanced out with, truth and so, what does it mean to worship God in truth? Again, I think it may mean at least two things. Number one, we worship sincerely. And number two, we worship scripturally. We worship sincerely and we worship scripturally. What does it mean to worship sincerely, to worship in truth? I think it means that we're honest, we're truthful. When we approach God, we, we're genuine, we're sincere. We have a true and honest heart. In other words, there's no hypocrisy. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, and you know that the Pharisees had religion down pat. I mean, they they knew how to how to get it done. They 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 had a, they had a, they they went through the motions. They they did everything just right. And I'm sure that a lot of people in Israel, uh, their, their fellow Jews, looked up to their spiritual leaders and go, man, we'll never. Th- those guys, man, they're on a different level than us. And those guys are true worshipers, man. I'm just, I don't know what I am. And they may have been impressed by their devotion or, or their apparent devotion, keeping all their rules, performing all their traditions. And then Jesus shows up and he calls them what? Hypocrites bunch of fakers a bunch of pretenders he says rightly did isaiah prophesy of you and he quotes isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me in other words their their mouth is you know going they're doing the thing but guess what their heart's far away their heart's not here He says, but in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men, exalting their own rules and regulations to the same level of scripture or even above scripture. You know it's possible to worship God in vain? I mean, to in other words, you can worship, you can can go about the act of worship, and accomplish absolutely nothing. It's not getting you anywhere. You're just wasting your time. That's what he said about the Pharisees' acts of worship, that it was accomplishing nothing. It was getting them nowhere to God. They weren't any closer to God than anyone else. They were just wasting their time. And so, listen, you may be able to fool other people and and get other people to think you're worshiping but guess what you can't fool God God knows if you're pretending if you're faking it right and let's let's face it there's times we'll come maybe here on Sunday morning and we're we're faking it we're pretending we're we're yeah we're singing the songs we're moving our lips we're raising our hands we're closing our eyes but it's vain It's not accomplishing anything because our hearts are not here. And so we need to make sure that we're being sincere in our worship. We're being true. Secondly, we need to make sure that we're worshiping scripturally. In other words, that our worship is based on what the Bible teaches rather than what we think or what we feel. In other words, we can't worship based on our experience. Go, whoa, I had this amazing experience. That was so worshipful. But what you just did and what you just what just happened totally contradicts what the Bible says. So, in other words, you can't base your worship experience on feelings and emotions and things that happen. You need to base it on the scriptures. What does the scripture teach? And so to worship in truth means that we must worship God in a way that is consistent with the truth that He's revealed in His Word and through His Son. God has revealed truth to us through His Word and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we need to make sure that how we worship is consistent with that. Let's consider the truth that God has revealed in His Son. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. In this passage, John 4, Jesus said, the hour is coming when everything's going to change. And that hour he was referring to was his death and resurrection and ascension that would introduce a whole new way of worshiping God. And worship would no longer be centered in the temple, but in the hearts of those who would receive him as their personal Lord and Savior. And that was the... the, the, the the, the, the meaning of that veil in the temple ripping from top to bottom. That, that man was given access to a holy God through the death of Jesus Christ. And so a true worshiper understands that the only way that they can approach God in worship is through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. So all the worship that we see going on in the world today, a lot of it I should say, Some of the things you might see on TV and the news and maybe on YouTube or some other places and you see the Shia Muslims, for example, who part of their ritual is to cut their scalp, right? Shave your heads, cut your scalp with a razor and then to whack your head with the the flat part of your sword and just bleed all over the place and have people whip you. And this is to them an act of worship, that they're worshiping God. But guess what? Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with that. And so what are they doing? They are worshiping in vain. Jesus has to be the center of worship. He's the go-between. You can't get to God. You can't worship God apart from Christ. God's also revealed truth, not only through his Son, but in his word. And in John 17, 17, 17, 17, Jesus was praying to God and asking God to sanctify his disciples by the truth. And what did he say next? Your word is truth. And so in order for worship to be true, it must line up with the truth of the scriptures. And ultimately, worship is simply an overflow of our understanding of what the Bible teaches about who God is and what he's done. That's all worship is. And the duty of the preacher is to teach people about God. And out of the knowledge of God will flow true worship. And so biblical preaching is designed to help people truly worship God. And so in a perfect world, right, the better the preaching, the better the singing. And I think that's why biblical preaching and teaching is so critical to the life of the church and why it should have a significant, if not the preeminent place in the worship service. There's a lot of people today who, who think, you know, man, there was just way too much preaching in that thing. I wish they had like 45 minutes of singing and maybe a 15-minute talk. That would be a great, perfect worship service. Now it's like we, we sing for 15 minutes and then we listen for 45 minutes or longer. You're like, yeah, right, 45 minutes? I wish. And so we, we, we missed the point that, that the importance of preaching, and it's interesting if you look at the, uh, know anything about the Protestant Reformation, how the pulpit became more prominent in the church architecture and and preaching became the priority in churches during the Protestant Reformation. James Montgomery Boyce, I've mentioned him before. He's one of my favorite commentators. And the reason why is because he always seems to fit in something about church history, some illustration from church history. And listen to what he says about worship in the Reformation. He said the doctrines and principles of the word of God, long covered over by the traditions and encrustations of ceremony of the medieval church, again came forth into prominence. And then he mentions Calvin, John Calvin in Geneva. He said he particularly carried this out with thoroughness, ordering all the altars, which were long the center of Latin mass, right? The communion table. As you go into a lot of churches today, that's what's in front and center is the communion table. That was the Catholic church in those days. He said he removed those from the churches and put a pulpit with a Bible on it in the center of the building. This was not to be on one side or the other, but in the very center where every line of architecture would carry the gaze of the worshiper to the book that alone contains the way of salvation and outlines the principles upon which the church of the living God is to be governed. I love that. And I'll never forget having the privilege of of actually visiting John Calvin's church and actually standing in his pulpit. I have a picture of standing in his pulpit. And uh, one of the things that was most unique to me walking into this church, it was so kind of dark and dingy and stark. And uh, the guy who was showing us around said, you know, when John Calvin took this church over, it was a Catholic church. And uh, it, it had all the paintings and the murals. If you've ever, ever been to a Catholic church, right? There's a whole lot to look at during the service. If you get bored, right? You're, you're looking around and there's all these things, the pictures of the saints and Mary and Jesus and all, all sorts of different things, right? And you're looking around. He said, when John Calvin came in, he told somebody, I want, you to, I want you to whitewash this whole thing. All the walls, all the ceilings, and it just kind of looks like this. Just kind of just a dull gray. And he said, because I don't want anybody distracted from the word of God. I want people to be focused on the preaching. John Stott, another one of my preaching heroes, has written a great little book called Between Two Worlds. And this is what he wrote about the God-ordained connection between worship and the word. Listen, this is profound. He said, the word and worship belong to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching, for preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce, which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor and our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. But when the word of God is expounded in all its fullness and the congregation begins to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyfully wonder before his throne. It is preaching which accomplishes this, the proclamation of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And so when the word... When the word is elevated in a church or in a person's life, worship will be elevated along with it. You can't have a high view of God unless you have a high view of his word. And so the deeper you go into God's word, the higher you will go in worshiping him. There's a couple places in scripture that exemplify this connection between the word and worship. For example, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. What's the very next word? Speaking or singing to one another, right, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The natural outflow Right? of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you will result in praise and honor and, and glory to God. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 in trying to correct the chaotic worship services that were going on in the church in Corinth and they had gotten a hold of the sign gifts and the tongues thing was a big deal and, and so they, they gravitated towards all those signs and wonders gifts and so apparently the, the church service in, in Corinth was pretty chaotic and everybody speaking in tongues and nobody was interpreting and everybody was just kind of doing their own thing, kind of edifying themselves and so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14... Verse 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers entered, will they not say, You are mad? I've actually been to some charismatic churches, and I've, I've walked in, and I thought, This is crazy. This is out of control. And that's what unbelievers are bound to think. They walk in and go, These people are nuts. I'm out of here. They're freaking me out. You know? But if all prophecy, excuse me, if all prophesy, in other words, if all communicate God's word, right? We know that that's prophecy, it's communicating God's word. If all prophesy, instead of speaking in tongues, you're all prophesying. An unbeliever or an ungifted man enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. See, the risk is you get all crazy and chaotic in your worship service, people walk in and they won't think God has anything to do with this. They walk into a service that is, that is controlled by the scriptures, right? And they're going to come under conviction and say, God has everything to do with this. And I'm really convicted and I need to worship the Lord. We don't have time to look at it, but you can maybe write down Nehemiah chapter 8 after Nehemiah... Uh, led the people to rebuild the walls, they asked for Ezra to bring the book of the law and to read it to them. And so they built a special pulpit, a podium for him to stand up and and, and to read the word of God. And, and, And when he opened up the book, they all stood. And it says he read it all morning, like for like three or four hours. The intent is that he read the scriptures and the people stood there and listened. And it says when he was done, they all fell on their faces and worshiped. great example of the effect of explaining the scriptures to people so they can understand and apply it to their lives. So the bottom line is we must worship God from our heart and with our head in spirit and in truth. Why? Because that is consistent with who he has revealed himself to be. God is spirit and God is truth. Leon Morris said it best, worship must always be such as to agree with the kind of God being worshiped. God simply wants to be engaged on his level. That's why he wants to be worshiped like this. And he wants worship so bad that he was willing to kill his son to get it. That's how much worship matters to God. That he would put his son on a cross so that we could have access to his presence. So that we could praise him and honor him and glorify him the way that we were created to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the profound thought that you that worship matters so much to you that you were willing to kill your son so we could do it. And I pray that you would just humble us and convict us in how we squander this this awesome right, this awesome opportunity and how we dishonor the sacrifice of your son when we don't take advantage of it. And Lord, I pray that you would make us true worshipers. Lord, not just when we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays, Lord, but Lord, all week, all year, our entire lives. And so that we, when we do come together, Father, that would be evident just by the way we sing, the way we worship and pray and fellowship together, Lord, that, that it's just an overflow of what's been going on in our lives all week. So teach us, Lord, how to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.